Last week when I went shopping for our council Christmas dinner, I saw an unfamiliar fruit in the grocery store. It was yellow and red about the size and shape of a crab apple. And following one of the most inviolable rules by which I live my life, seeing an unfamiliar fruit, I had to buy it. So I wrote down the name, I bought a tray of them, and started to look up what I could make with them. The fruit, it turned out, were tejocotes. They're used in Mexican and South American cuisine. Maybe you know them, I didn't. And by far the most popular recipe I found for them was ponche navideño, Christmas punch. In fact, it seemed like almost the only thing that anyone does with them, so I figured I had to try it. As often happens when I buy unfamiliar foods, the cooking of said foods requires me to buy a lot of other foods that I don't currently have on hand. Christmas punch, for example, required 11 ingredients, the only one of which we had was water, (laughs) and now tejocotes. So I recruited Nola to go to the grocery store with me and we bought apples and pears and prunes and guava and sugarcane and piloncillo and tamarind pods and hibiscus blossoms and Mexican cinnamon. And we brought it all home and right now there's almost nothing Nola likes better than to help us cooking. And so she sat on the counter and washed the fruit and cracked open the hard tamarind pods with me to get to the sticky meat inside and broke the Mexican cinnamon into small pieces and we took bites of guava and pear and then she got bored and went to play with Rochelle and I kept preparing the punch, quartering the fruits and chopping the sugar cane and weighing out all the ingredients so that I'd be sure that they were exactly right and then pouring a gallon of water in and turning on the gas. Our biggest pot was so full that if the recipe had called for even one more tejocote, it would have overflowed. It was supposed to simmer for an hour, but all those flavors steeping in the hot water, mingling and melding, but the pot was so full that I didn't feel like I could walk away. So I just stood there so that it wouldn't boil over and ruin this drink that I had already poured a lot of time and energy into. I stood there and watched it simmer until it had reduced down enough into the pot that it wasn't going to fall out. And then since I had stood there for that long, I just kept standing there stirring it more often than it really needed, fussily adjusting the heat up like one mark on the dial, then down a mark on the dial, tasting little spoonfuls along the way to see how it was developing. And finally, after an hour or so of simmering, I strained it through two different sieves until all of the pieces were out and I ladled some into a mug and I had my first ponche navideño. And it tasted like fruit punch. (laughs) Which maybe sounds obvious to you now as I say it, it surprised me. Even though that is literally exactly what it is, that's not what I was expecting. I'm not sure what I was expecting. And actually, until that moment, I had never considered that fruit punch, which to me meant a bright red substance made from high fructose corn syrup, that that 
had ever been anything other than that bright red substance, that fruit punch existed before high sea or Hawaiian punch or Tahitian treat. It certainly had not occurred to me as I purchased 10 new ingredients and spent all of this time painstakingly preparing and cooking them that that was what I was making. But I was. I spent over $30, okay, over $40, and easily four hours of my life to make the homemade version of something I could have gotten from the store for two bucks. And I loved it. I mean, the punch itself was fine, but I loved the process of making it. All that Googling of recipes and planning of shopping lists, chasing after Nola through the store as she cried out, Pears! Pears! Where are you, Pears? <laughs> Sitting her on the counter and cracking tamarind pods together, taking our first bites of fresh guava with one another, giving myself the gift of two hours with nothing to do but cook for myself, tasting the difference moment by moment, spoon by spoon, waking up the next morning with a house still smelling spicy and fruitful the way that houses should smell at Christmas, spending all that time on something I could have gotten instantly. In 1989, a group of food activists published what they called the Slow Food Manifesto. It captured the values of a movement which began as a protest in Italy in response to the opening of a McDonald's at the base of the Spanish Steps in Rome. The values that they were writing about were summed up in three words, good, clean, and fair. They believed that food could be produced and harvested and cooked and eaten in ways which were delicious and sustainable and ethical. It was a movement about food, but it was really bigger than that. The manifesto declared, we are enslaved by speed, all succumbed to the same insidious virus of fast living. For the slow movement, the way we produce and eat food was only one symptom of a larger problem, a virus of speed and convenience that has infected the way we think about everything in our lives. I don't want to focus on that problem. I think you know that problem already. The slow movement in response has imagined a way of life that values quality over quantity and ethics over convenience, and my favorite, pleasure over efficiency. Imagine, it says, a world in which rather than asking what will make the most money, we ask what will give the most pleasure to the greatest number of people. Imagine a meal prepared thoughtfully and lovingly among friends and family and enjoyed leisurely lingeringly, everyone hoping to maximize the enjoyment of this shared experience. That's slow food. Now, every year at Advent, we tell the stories of people waiting. We talk about Mary waiting, about Elizabeth waiting. We talk about Zechariah, who gets struck silent by an angel for nine months. We talk about Anna and Simeon, these old prophets who hung around the temple waiting for the Messiah, the people waiting to be delivered from occupation, the world waiting for peace and love and justice, 
waiting for the world that God imagines for an end to pain and suffering and selfishness every December, all December. And then Christmas comes and the wait is over. Joy to the world, salvation is accomplished. Elizabeth and Mary have their babies. Zechariah talks. Simeon can die in peace. The Messiah has come. The wait is over. The world God imagines is inaugurated. That's how we tell the story every year. That's how I tell the story every year. Which is a funny way to tell it because, of course, what arrives on Christmas is a baby. People are waiting for God's deliverance, for God's power, for God's salvation, and it arrives with angels and kings and a star and miracles. The trumpets sound, the bells ring, the candles are lit, we sing Silent Night. The wait is over, the world is saved. Except that it's not. Mary is left there in the stable with a baby who has no power, who brings no deliverance, who cannot even lift up his own head on his shoulders, let alone bring down the Roman Empire or conquer sin and death. After all that waiting and all that fanfare, the next story we get is this one. Not a story of Jesus saving people, but a story of him being saved, needing to be saved. The one that everyone has been waiting for gets hidden beneath blankets and secreted out of the country at night, nearly killed. The people have been waiting and waiting for the instant when God's plan for salvation will be accomplished. But if Jesus is that plan, it's not an instant plan. It's a long, long plan, a slow plan for slow salvation which is a strange choice. Like if God wants to save the world, to deliver the world, to change the world we have imagined into the world that God imagines, as I say, God does every Advent, presumably God can do it quickly, efficiently, even ethically and sustainably. If God is God, God can bring fast salvation. And God chooses slow salvation chooses to send a baby to do a grown-up's job. And then, of course, that baby grows up and dies without exactly accomplishing the thing, and the work of salvation keeps going. God chooses to, to stretch it out over centuries, over millennia, saving us at this leisurely pace over many, many glasses of wine. And I guess I believe if God is God, there must be something good about that choice. So much of Christian history and theology has been about the question of salvation, about the the end product that God is trying to get to. So much emphasis has been given to where we will all be individually and collectively when it's all over. So much emphasis on getting there as fast as we can. But if God has chosen this long, slow road to that destination, there must be something happening during all of this time, over all these millennia, something valuable, something better even, maybe, than fast salvation. 
It would be easy to think of the slow food movement as like an Epicurean movement, that it's about foodies or gourmands creating elaborate and expensive dishes, but I don't think that's it. In fact, in some ways, I don't think the slow food movement is about food at all. It's not about the end product. You could make gross food really slowly. I've done it lots of times. Slow food is about the process. It's about us in the meantime. It's about what happens to human beings when we prioritize the cheapest food of the greatest quantities at the lowest price, no matter the cost. And it's about what might happen to us, what does happen to us when we gather with those we love, leisurely preparing food that was fairly procured and savoring even simple meals made with care. More than anything about the food itself, it's the quality of time, the vision of life that the slow movement prioritizes. They have a word for it, they call it conviviality. And it's so important that every local slow food chapter is called a convivium. Conviviality, con viva, to live together. At its root, the movement is about the quality of our life together. So much of Christian history has hinged on the question of salvation. Who gets saved and how and when and what does it mean and can we be sure? Salvation has seemed, still seems in many traditions to be the thing, the point of it all, the thing that we've been waiting for, the end result that we're headed to. But if simply saving us was the point, God could accomplish it right now, fast, in this instant. I believe that. Or God could have accomplished it in that instant, 2,000 years ago. God could have come in power, decisively, efficiently, and instead God comes as a powerless baby. After all of those Christmas stories, after, after this story of Jesus at age three, the next story we get is him at age 12. It's like fast forwards nine years, but that was nine years. And after that, 12, really like maybe age 30? All those years, all that time, seemingly with nothing to show for it. No story good enough to write down for the Bible. Surely God could have chosen a faster plan could have brought salvation to the world before now, and instead, God has chosen this, has chosen us, has chosen life playing out over millennia. God could buy the punch cheaply and easily, and instead, God has gathered all of the necessary ingredients and given us the tools and the recipe and left us to stir and taste and fuss and simmer and mingle and meld and sometimes boil over. God has left us to laugh and fight and fall in love the way that people do in a kitchen over food. God could have gotten to that final product by a much more direct and painless path, but instead, God allows us to linger in pleasure and in pain over salvation's recipe chopping and peeling and breaking apart, making mistakes and trying to fix them, and sometimes, sometimes happening on something that is really good, delicious, beautiful. 
God has chosen this, chosen us, chosen life. And if God is God, there must be something about it all that is good, that is important, that is more important even than the finished product, than all of our fretting and focus on getting to salvation. God can handle our salvation in an instant. In the meantime, God gives us this gift of time, of a world that is fruitful, of lingering, crowded in the pot with nothing else to do but focus on the quality of our life together, waiting and tasting along the way to see how it will develop.